I wouldn't characterize it just as a win. This was a substantial <laughs> victory. Some commentators are, are calling it, and I would agree, the most significant decision in the history of web scraping or the CFAA. And it was. Hey everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Yaka Talks on the new Hard Yaka YouTube channel. I'm your host, Alec Liu. You'll still be able to watch past episodes, including our interview with Solana creator Anatoly Yakovenko on the Global ID YouTube channel, link in the description below. The purpose of today's episode is to answer a fundamental question. Who owns public data? Is it the big tech platforms where a lot of that data lives? Or is it us, the public? Last week, we saw a landmark ruling in a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, which answers that very question. HiQ Labs versus LinkedIn. Today, I have with me Greg Kidd and Thomas Christopher, both of whom have been closely involved in the case. They'll give us a little historical context, walk us through the legal battle, and talk about how this will impact companies, individual users like you and me, and the development of the broader internet. Let's start with some intros. Greg, would you like to go first? Hi, I'm Greg Kidd. I'm the uh, CEO of Global ID, also a founder of Hard Yakka, which is an investment company that invested in um, HiQ, and previously an investor in 3Taps, which had a similar battle to HiQ with Craigslist all the way back to 2012. Thomas, would you like to uh, give a quick intro? Sure, I'd be happy to. My name is Thomas Christopher. I'm a litigation attorney here in San Francisco, California, and I represent uh, 3Taps and also Hard Yakka, and I have been involved in working with 3Taps on some uh, litigation uh, closely analogous to the matters we're going to talk about here today. So th this battle between HiQ and LinkedIn began in 2019, um, but why don't we take this opportunity to start where it all began for you, Greg, as both of you have mentioned. Uh, this fight for to define public data ownership goes back quite a few years further. Um, I don't want to spoil the story, but let's just say that at one point you were sued for $13 trillion, a sum that isn't too far off from the GDP of China. How did that happen? Yeah, I think I was going to have to be picking up litter from the side of the highway for the, quite a few years as well. But uh, it was a felony hacking effect, uh, offense of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was originally legislation that grew out of fear over people hacking into defense computers and launching nuclear missiles or really big banks, but has crept down to being a statute that large technology companies have used to threaten anybody who's doing something with their data that they don't like. And in this case, we had a company called 3Taps that would gather data from market exchanges, public data, like eBay or Indeed for Jobs or Craigslist, and would put that data in a common format. And then a developer could do something like create a search engine that could search for cars across all those different sources or all the different cities. And uh, most of the exchanges really liked that we did that because it gave more exposure. But some, and one in particular, Craigslist, did not like us doing that. And tried every trick in the book to try to stop us from using and accessing that data, even though it was public data. 
and and that's where the um, that's where the dispute started all the way back in in 2012 with them trying to to stop us and us trying to establish the the right to use and access of that public data and in many ways that's analogous to what happened with HiQ it wanted access to the public LinkedIn in profiles but the reception that we received from the legal community back in 2012 is very different from the outcome now in 2022 and it's been a journey over those 10 years between those two points of view in the legal system. Got it. That, so Th Thomas, when, when did you enter the equation in terms of uh, the three taps and Craigslist lawsuit? Around 2017, uh, it was wrapping up, but there were some ancillary cases that three taps had to deal with uh, that grew out of some of the relationships it had uh, in connection with the activities it was doing with Craigslist. And we worked on those matters. We, we settled them, I think, on fairly successful terms. Uh, and that, again, that would have been about 2017 or so. And I've been involved with three taps and uh, similar matters ever since. And just to put it in context, do you want to just explain, Thomas, that we wrote a amicus for the HIQ yeah, case? Yeah, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be happy to. Uh, the, the HIQ case is proceeding here in the Northern District of California. And the first significant ruling that came out of that case came from a judge here, Judge Chen. And what he effectively held was that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act doesn't really apply in situations where we're talking about truly public data. Meaning when you put something up on LinkedIn and you don't have it protected with a password, you've kind of put it out there to the public. And the judge held that that doesn't, uh, the CFAA uh, doesn't apply in that context. Now, LinkedIn didn't like that result. And consequently, they took the matter up to the Ninth Circuit. And up on the Ninth Circuit, we, uh, on behalf of three taps, submitted what's called an amicus brief. And I'll explain that briefly in case some of the listeners don't know what that is. We all understand that in a litigation, there are generally two parties. You have the plaintiff and you have the defendant. And they make their legal arguments to the court and the court's supposed to make a decision. However, under the federal rules, anybody can come in who believes they have some significant experience or interest in the litigation and they can file what's called an amicus brief. Now, literally translated, that means I'm filing as a friend of the court and here's some information or some legal analysis that maybe the parties haven't covered, and we'd like to submit that to the court for its consideration. And we did that uh, in connection with the HIQ appeal. And we and so did Craigslist. Yeah. Craigslist did it as well. Yeah, Craigslist did it as well. Um, I think uh, what we submitted uh, was superior and more effective than what Craigslist did, and I think the ultimate result bears that out. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, although, as we'll discuss, the matter sort of went up and down to the Supreme Court, at the end of the day, what the Ninth Circuit did is it largely agreed with a lot of the positions that Three Taps had taken in its amicus brief, meaning that, you know, you, LinkedIn, you don't actually own that data that the users put up. That's public data, it's public property, it's public facts. It's not the property of LinkedIn. That was really kind of the fundamental point that we pushed in our amicus. 
uh, because we allowed the parties to, to argue kind of the more technical legal aspects, but that's a good summary of what we were trying to say to the court. And at the end of the day, if you looked at the Ninth Circuit's recent opinion, uh, it's pretty clear that that sentiment uh, drove the analysis in a lot of ways. You know, the, the earlier judge that we had, Judge Breyer, acknowledged it was public data, but he took a view that even though it was public data, the party that hosted the server could say, it's public to everyone except you. And our judge said, and if they say that you can't access it if you have a red bow tie, and when he gave the ruling, he was wearing a red bow tie, it meant it's public to everyone except people with red bow ties. He acknowledged that this was a ridiculous kind of interpretation or ridiculous law, but he said Congress made the law that way. He's reading it literally, and it's up to Congress to change the law to fix the problem, and that he, as a mere judge, could not fix the problem and turned it over to Congress. Now, in this case, Judge Chen isn't waiting for Congress to fix the law. He just read the law very plainly and came to a conclusion that, that the legal system could, could reach this conclusion. We did not need an act of Congress to correct an absurdity. And so obviously we feel like Judge Chin got it right and Judge Breyer didn't. So as you can imagine, when we filed our lawsuit here in the Northern District of California against LinkedIn, the very first thing they did is pull out all the stops and do everything they absolutely could do within the law to get our case transferred to Judge Breyer. Because there was a precedent there that LinkedIn liked and they really didn't like Judge Chen's precedent. So the, the, the initial first real battle with motions and briefing and filing in our current case against LinkedIn was whether or not LinkedIn was going to get the case transferred to Judge Breyer. Now, at the end of the day, we succeeded. The court granted our motions and did not grant LinkedIn's motions. So we ended up in front of Judge Chen. Uh, we we think that makes sense because the the HIQ case is really the most analogous case because it involves the same defendant, and if they're in front of Judge Chen, it makes sense for us to be there too. And and the case was appealed in the Ninth District and went to a three judge panel. Do you want to talk about that too, Thomas? Sure, sure. Um, unlike an appeal to the Supreme Court, which is discretionary. Here in the Northern District of California, anybody who wants to take an appeal to the Ninth Circuit can do that. And when Judge Chen issued uh, his ruling that was adverse to LinkedIn, they weren't very happy about that. They immediately took an appeal to the Ninth Circuit. What they did at the Ninth Circuit is they largely attempted to rely upon a series of other precedents, uh, other cases that I would say were also wrongly decided, such as the Power Ventures case, to argue that, look, if we send you a letter that says you're not allowed to touch this data, then from then on, if you touch that data, you're in violation of federal law. Now, the other side, HIQ, said, no, no, that's not right. You're putting this out there publicly. Anybody can turn on a computer, go to LinkedIn, and can look at the information. And if they can do that, then really everybody has access to this information. So it's kind of impossible to exceed access, which was LinkedIn's whole point. If you exceed access, you're in violation of federal law. Now the Ninth Circuit didn't agree with that. The Ninth Circuit agreed with Judge Chin. 
in an opinion that I refer to as HIQ-1. It's the first opinion they issued back in 2019. Um, and, and that was, in that opinion as well, uh, I think the Ninth Circuit did rely a little bit on the work that three taps had done in our amicus brief in sort of coming to, around to the idea that when you put something out there publicly, it now belongs to the public. It doesn't belong to the giant social media platform that claims ownership. It still belongs to the public. Uh, now, as you can imagine, HIQ did not like that result. Uh, excuse me. LinkedIn, no, you mean LinkedIn did not like that result. LinkedIn did not. So they and, attempted. And, and particularly Microsoft, their owner, yeah. who wanted to be in HIQ's business. That's right. And that was a point HIQ had made all along. They said, well, wait a minute. This isn't really fair. We're trying to monetize this data and make a business out of it. And LinkedIn knew we were doing that for a long time. And then one day when they decided they wanted to monetize it in the same way, they viewed it as a, as a competitor. So all of a sudden, out of the blue, we're felons. And we're not allowed to do this anymore. And that argument fell on deaf ears in the district court and the Ninth Circuit as well. LinkedIn didn't like that. So they asked for an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. Now, an appeal to the United States Supreme Court isn't an automatic thing. You know, people say, you know, I'll sue you, I'll take you all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, that's not your choice. The Supreme Court has to pick you. And they don't pick a lot of cases. Now, while we all were waiting around to see if the Supreme Court wanted to hear the HIQ case, the Supreme Court took on another case, and it was called Van Buren. And that case also dealt with issues in the space of what's a violation of the CFAA and what isn't. And after the Supreme Court issued its opinion in that case, it went back to the Ninth Circuit and said, you know, guys, look, we've issued a new opinion here. We want you, the Ninth Circuit, to read this opinion, think about it, and go back and tell us if you still think you've reached the right result in HIQ. And that's what the Ninth Circuit did. And the opinion that came out here this past week was the result of that analysis by the Ninth Circuit. And what the Ninth Circuit basically said is, okay, Supreme Court, we've, we've read your opinion. We understand it. You make certain analogies there about a gate being up, a gate being down. But at the end of the day, when we're talking about something like LinkedIn, there's no gate at all. And so, even under your analysis in Van Buren, this is public data, and LinkedIn doesn't own it. And more so, the Ninth Circuit made a very significant point, uh, which I think is highly relevant to uh, power ventures and Facebook and some other things we're going to talk about, and that is this. We don't want these big platforms to develop information monopolies. That's not going to be in the public interest, and we don't want it to happen. And so at the end of the day, the Ninth Circuit agreed with its decision, agreed with Judge Chen, and said, we're not going to apply the CFAA in this context, at least where we're talking about things that people put out there publicly. And really, the, the principle was, what's trespassing? And how can there be a trespassing situation when something's public? There's no gate. That's where this gate up, gate down analogy comes into being. And when LinkedIn or Craigslist made us out to be trespassers, you know, we came back and said, you know, the gate is open to everyone. 
You just don't like us. You don't like how we use the data. And look, there's already laws out there for misuse of data, but we're not misusing the data. You know, if, if we were misusing the data, you'd have all sorts of legal remedies, but that's really not what is at issue here. And so because you can't punish us for using the data, you've tried to create a fake trespass situation and, you know, and the courts aren't buying it and you can't pull that off anymore. And, and that's really you know, the relief that we've gotten here. We're not seeking money or some sort of financial return. We're just seeking to be able to access public data like everybody else. Yeah, and you know what LinkedIn was arguing really made no sense at all. If you think about it, you take take it outside of the uh, technology context and think about it in these terms. If somebody puts information up on a billboard on the side of the highway, they're making that information public. And once you do that, you can't thereafter say, okay, Greg kid, when you drive by, you're not allowed to look. You're not authorized to look at that public information. Oh, but everybody else, you guys, it's okay. You know, have a look, drive on by. Oh, but that next car, no, no, no. You guys aren't allowed to look either. It makes no sense in that context. And that's effectively what LinkedIn was saying. And uh, fortunately and correctly, uh, four judges have now said no. And LinkedIn tried to get a amicus brief from a faux privacy group by arguing that this was a violation of, of privacy, that you know we're getting all this information from LinkedIn users. But LinkedIn has a feature which lets users have a differential view of private information from public information. And so, you know, we kind of threw up our hands and saying like, what does this have to do with privacy? This is the not private data. If, if we were going after the private data, that would be one thing. But this is the data that users affirmatively said they wanted to make public, right? And so, you know, we had another amicus brief in the Haiku case, and it came from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And, you know, they're just not buying these faux privacy arguments. And if anybody is pro-privacy, it's the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But there's real privacy, and then there's faux privacy. And so LinkedIn hiding behind the veil that this was somehow like a privacy violation, you know, as opposed to like another thing of it being trespass. These were essentially fake arguments. And the whole concept of, of saying that somehow we're going to use the data in a bad way was really you know, brought down by the fact that when we did discovery, we found out that really Microsoft wanted to just be doing the same thing with the data that we were. They just wanted to eliminate a competitor. The privacy argument just didn't pass the smell test at the end of the day. Everybody knows uh, if you get on LinkedIn and you post the college you graduated from, in the year that you graduated, everybody understands that you don't think that's private confidential information. If it was private confidential information, you wouldn't be posting it up on LinkedIn, right? And, you know, despite LinkedIn's arguments and the amount of money they spent on legal fees and the very excellent lawyering, at the end of the day, judges have common sense too. And judges have or at one time or another have used LinkedIn or certainly know people who have and they understand that when you're putting things up there on LinkedIn you don't have an expectation that it's going to be private and confidential everybody knows that and LinkedIn's arguments fell flat on that point point. and again I come from the 
from the the Twitter world. And you know, we have over the years that Twitter had a number of people, and there've been a number of movies where somebody says, "Well, I privately tweeted something," and anybody who thinks that you privately tweet something, and like you know, well, I only tweeted it to my you know, blah 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 blah. Well, their hilarity will ensue, and so you know, it really comes down to this common sense test is like, you know, what's public is public. We're obviously big, big privacy advocates. And there's a whole bunch of access issues and gate up and gate down around, you know, privacy issues. But if you can't get the public issue right, you know, God help you if you're now going to have to tackle like what access rights are for private data. And, you know, so what this really comes back to is, is you know, that, that original question is, you know, who owns the data? And, and clearly there will be times when some tech platform owns the data. There'll be times when the user owns the data. But there's a third alternative, which is when the data has been made public, you know, everybody owns the data. Just like facts can't be copyrighted, facts that are out there, you know, are facts. Everybody has access to that data. It, nobody has a right that excludes other people from, from accessing that information. So for this one large class of information, it's really, really important to get this sorted out, that everybody owns access to public data. And at a time when there's such challenges and polarization in our society, at least now we can say in a situation of public data, everybody has access to it. There's not some alternate or reduced factor information set that only some people get to see and the rest have to like avert their eyes. And the good news is it, it is getting sorted out, I think, in the right way. Uh, the Ninth Circuit was pretty emphatic. It was a 3-0 decision, meaning none of the judges dissented. It was a unanimous opinion. Uh, that made very clear to LinkedIn that this is not your property. You don't own those facts and you don't own that data. You may have a license in it, but you don't own it. And you don't get to tell people that they're not allowed to look at it or use it. So, so Thomas, for the legal layman like me how where are we now in terms of the legal process how final is this decision uh, very merely final and what i mean by that is this is a case that's proceeding in our federal court system and our federal court system has three levels you have the district court level that's where judge chen sits and that's where most cases start and, you know, as I mentioned, HIQ won emphatically at that level. The next level up is what's called the Ninth Circuit. At least if you live on the west coast of the United States, the next level up is the Ninth Circuit. If you live in different parts of the country, there are different circuit courts that cover those parts of the country as well. Uh, we've been to the Ninth Circuit twice, the first time they agreed with HIQ. Now, Beyond the Ninth Circuit, there's only one court. That's the United States Supreme Court. It's the highest court in the land, and they have the final say. Now, the Supreme Court decided the Van Buren case, and in doing so, said to the Ninth Circuit, read Van Buren and decide if you still agree with your analysis in HIQ. The Ninth Circuit has now done that, and they've spoken. They've spoken clearly and emphatically. Now, what LinkedIn will do uh, partially because it's very litigious and partially because when you're owned by Microsoft, you don't really have resource constraints. They're undoubtedly going to attempt to get this back up to the United States Supreme Court. 
If I had to bet, I would bet that the Supreme Court won't take the case. They have to take lots of different cases in lots of different areas of the law. You gotta do a little bit of tax, do a little bit of patent, do a little bit of criminal, and that limits the amount of cases they can take in this context. And having just decided one in the Van Buren context, I don't think they're gonna take the case. And if the Supreme Court says no, now the Ninth Circuit opinion becomes carved in stone. And it is the law for the entire West Coast, at least until the Supreme Court decides to review the issue, but that may not happen for some time. Now, I do want to mention that uh, it is possible that what LinkedIn could do is it could say, instead of taking this to the Supreme Court, we're going to go back to the Ninth Circuit and we're going to say, look, three judges made this decision, but there's really 20 judges on this court. We want you to put together a large panel of 11 judges, and we want them to review this. That's what's called an in bonk proceeding. The Ninth Circuit might grant that. It's possible. Uh, but it, 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 it's not commonly granted. And given the importance here to LinkedIn, I think they probably will try and go directly to the Supreme Court. I don't think they'll succeed. If they do get to the Supreme Court, I don't think they're going to fare any better than they did at the Ninth Circuit. And they might find that getting to the Supreme Court turns out to be a, a Pyrrhic victory. In that if the Supreme Court says the same thing as the Ninth Circuit says, well now, that law isn't just for the Ninth Circuit. Now it covers all 12 circuits, the entire country. Bit of a risk for LinkedIn and a bit of a gamble. And it's not a gamble I would take if I were them. So, Greg, with with Three Taps, that was a company you co-founded. Your company was the one getting sued. With HiQ, you weren't actually involved at all prior to the lawsuit, right? At, at the time, you hadn't yet invested. You would later. Um, but it wasn't a hard yaka portfolio company originally. How how did the both of you get involved? How did this come on your radar? Well, we saw the press reports that Haiku was being um, threatened in exactly the same way that, that Craigslist had threatened us. Now, in Craigslist, it had turned into a lawsuit. In the Haiku case, it had not actually turned into a lawsuit yet. LinkedIn was threatening. And so the challenge with once you are threatened by LinkedIn backed by Microsoft, usually all the investors run for the hills because nobody wants to spend their precious investment capital you know, defending against getting sued by Microsoft. But that actually created, because we're sort of like firemen running to the fire, as you've seen for other hard yak up investments and things that deal with risk is, you know, when we see a situation like that, you know, we get the fire hose and the axe and we say, well, by gosh, this looks like a really clean issue. You haven't been sued yet. Why don't you actually petition to get an injunction to keep doing what you're doing? Why don't you be on offense rather than defense? And we didn't have that luxury in the three taps case, but we were there at the right time. And so we made a strategic investment, which gave Haikyuu the liquidity to basically be able to go on and, and, and seek that injunction, which they won and now have successfully defended at all the levels that, that Thomas has um, 
Thomas has been talking about. And so it was an opportune time for us to get on the cap table and, and provide uh, equity and, and just moral support that you know, they were fighting the good fight. And, and as they say, good facts make good law, bad facts make bad law, and better to be on offense rather than defense. And so the timing there was really, really critical for us. And, and that's how we came to become you know, co-warriors with Haiku to get this principle. Now, it certainly happened that it, it basically was pretty much the same framing that we had with, um, with, uh, you know, with Craigslist, but on defense, they could just keep pushing and draining us and, and basically were just trying to run us out of money. Uh, and, and most of these cases, including this other one where there's a very tough precedent that's been set on private data called Power Ventures versus Facebook. Facebook sued a company that was not well-funded, could not afford the kind of legal talent that we have here and couldn't go the distance and therefore a very bad outcome came because you know, it, was, it was a poor set of facts, poor timing, poor funding resulted in bad law. And, and this was just the opposite. This was good timing, good facts, and it resulted in our opinion in, in, in good law. And anything we could do to help that, you know, makes us feel like we're moving the ball forward. I have to say this was kind of personal. All the way back in 2013, a young internet archivist, an activist named Aaron Schwartz had been downloading another form of public data, you know, academic research, and was charged under the same thing we were being threatened with in Q and in Craigslist and did not have huge financial resources and ended up committing suicide. And it, 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 the Internet's Own Boy is a documentary that we funded because we feel bad about others that may have been put in this same situation. You know, it was nominated for Academy Award. The Snowden movie actually won the Academy Award, but, but which was a pretty good movie too. Um, but we feel strongly about the issue from an ethical point of view. And again, it's just a question of finding the right plaintiff at the right time and then the right team like Thomas brought to us to help focus the judges on the facts at the right time. And you know, there's been a shift in the mood about what big tech can get away with and 2022 is not 2012. And, uh, and you know, I, I think that's a big wake up call to LinkedIn, Microsoft, I think it may be a wake-up call in turn to, uh, to Facebook as well, that 2022 is not 2012. And so, um, you know, to us, this isn't the beginning, it's not the end, it's the middle of a battle over who has access to public data and who has access to private data with user consent. It's obviously a different issue when we're talking about private data, but this gates-up, gates-down analogy of understanding what rights users have or the public has versus the tech giants that simply run the servers have, you know, this issue is an issue of our time. Now, it, if you look at some of the media coverage of this case, all of the headlines focus on, on scraping, which is just a term really for extracting data from websites. Um, but there is, of course, the notable case of Clearview AI, which scraped publicly accessible social media photos of people to feed into their facial recognition engine. Naturally, for a lot of people, that's super creepy. Um, how would you frame that kind of behavior in the context of the principles that you're talking about? Is this just a matter of having rights, but also responsibilities along with those rights? Or do we have to think about what constitutes good or bad behavior? What's, what's your take on that? So here's a very 
I'm going to use some analogies here. And Thomas, what was the uh, the Supreme Court case? Was the the one around the uh, police and whatnot? Van Buren. Van Buren. So in the case of Van Buren, you had a a cop who had access to the system where you could run a plate, and he ran a plate for a buddy on somebody who may have been having an affair or something. And so the question was, let me put it in another way. If you come to a property and there's a sign that says no hunting, and you go on the property and you start hunting, and then they charge you with trespass, is that the right charge? Did you do, were you properly on that property and then you used your access improperly or were you never allowed access in the first place? And so like the case with AI, the case with this cop doing this, clearly what he did was wrong. He misused his access and there's laws about that. And, and that can be a crime or a problem in and of itself. But that's different from saying that he didn't have access at all. That policeman did have access to the system because you know he was a policeman at the time. He just misused the system. And in the Clearview AI case, like the question is, are you going to ban everybody's access or anybody's access to public pictures on the internet because you like don't like how they use them? Now you can pass laws about how you use the data, but that doesn't mean you come up with a sweeping policing mandate that says you can't access the data in the first place. And so Clearview definitely raises all sorts of ethical issues about how you use data, but you wouldn't stop them or everyone else from access to the internet and pictures in the first place. And so, you know, that's the question. And so this, this situation where companies that can't control use, which really is where they run into competition or people do things that are unethical, you know, Facebook's going to say the same thing with Cambridge Analytica. Look at all the bad things Cambridge Analytica did when they got access to the system and misused the data. So the question is, do you punish misuse of data by banning access? That's a very, very indirect method, but that's what people rely on when they can't basically control use well enough. And so that hammer though, is a very, very broad, blunt instrument that leaves all sorts of other people bloodied, damages competition damages innovation and, and, and that's the wrong way about it you need a scalpel to go after bad uses you cannot control bad use like you know if you think clearview ai is a bad use through a broad-based sledgehammer at denying access overall to the concept of, of of gathering i mean if you do that that's the end of google i mean google is one big engine that simply you know, they don't call it scrape, they call it crawling, but come on, it's the same thing. And in fact, we used to get the data, not from Craigslist, we just got it from, from Google. That was the big surprise to them. It's like, we're just getting it from Google. We didn't even get it from you. And so scraping, crawling, anything that analyzes the internet is accessing the internet, collecting information, analyzing it, normalizing it, reformat us, reformatting it and publishing it. And so without that access, you know, the whole concept of the usefulness of the internet disappears. So be very careful if you conflate access and use. Thomas, did you want to like weigh in on any yeah, of these points? You, you really do have to understand that the law has ways of dealing with people who misuse the information after the fact. Let's go back to Craigslist. There's absolutely, people advertise on Craigslist for house sitters, for example. And they put up ads looking for people to watch their place when they're going to be out of town. They may need a pet sitter, someone to feed the dog, or whatever. If I get on there, 
I just copy down those ads, I take down that information. Nobody would say that's illegal or that should be illegal, even if I do it electronically. But let's say I'm working with a burglary team and I'm taking down and getting information and gathering it from people to figure out who's going to be out of town for a few days. I then sell that information off to a burglary team and they go and steal from you while you're gone. Obviously, I've committed a crime. And what we're not going to do, and what makes no sense as a policy matter, is to say, hey, people aren't allowed to get on there and gather that data in the first place because there's so many legitimate uses for it. Instead, the law deals with what you do with the data after the fact. When I sell it to a burglary team to go and rob those people, now I've committed a crime, no doubt about it. We don't want to restrict the front-end gathering of the data when the law has all kinds of tools to deal with people who might misuse it on the back end. That's it. And, and really, you know, the problem with all this is when you start restricting use to these access violations, what you're doing is you're knocking out all sorts of legitimate competitive offerings. And, and this has really been the problem or the issue with Facebook. They started, after encouraging developers to use their APIs, and get access to the social graph for users. Then they began realizing there were all sorts of startups that were using Facebook social graph and were starting competitive offerings. They then began to selectively turn off that access in exchange and leave it on for some folks like Lyft or Match.com who would then pay them for that access and would also exchange private data that they collected about Lyft users or Match.com users. And it became kind of a backdoor, wink, wink, you know, we'll help you, you help us. And the user is totally left out of this. It doesn't matter whether the user wants to you know, share the data or not. Their, their, their wishes and desires are swept away in 50-page terms of use, terms of abuse, where you know, nobody privately, publicly has any idea what's happening with the data anymore, except for Facebook, right? And, and so, you know, 40,000 developers get knocked out. And, you know, Facebook can hide behind, well, there was Cambridge Analytica, which is true. You know, they should not have had that happen, but that's a use violation. They shouldn't use that as a pretext to then engage in a large swath of anti-competitive actions against all sorts of illegitimate uses but they simply don't want the competition, so they cut off access to those parties that they don't want to feel the heat on. You'll find Facebook never grants that access to, say, the next competitor to WhatsApp, right? They're never going to cut a deal with another messaging app that's going to challenge their dominance you know, to, to WhatsApp. And they're probably regretting now that they granted it to TikTok because now they've got somebody who's putting some heat on Instagram. But, but now there's so much public visibility it's tough for them to like turn it off without being revealed for what they really are, which is, a, you know, we own the data, the user doesn't, and we use it in a really anti-competitive way. It sounds like, Greg, that you're making the point that the fight that we've seen this past week is just one side of the coin um, in terms of answering the question, who owns public data? Um, what is this other side and, and and what is this ongoing fight in terms of your personal data and and, and who who owns it can, can you elaborate on that yeah so in this this principle there's a a, a legal scholar at Orrin Kerr, and he talks about this gates up gates down and obviously 
in this case, we've decided the gate doesn't even exist for public data. There is no gate. You can just go in and get the data. Gates down could also mean that if I have data that's sitting on Facebook and I want to share it to get a loan or I want to share it to get a job or whatever, and it's my data, can I drop the gate down and then share it with someone else? If I want to create a credential that shows I've had a certain name on Instagram since such and such a date, you know, it's, it's a fact. It's a fact about me. Should I be able to access my own data and then use it how I want to use it? And in fact, in the global ID world of self-sovereignty, we're suggesting individuals ought to be able to go out and get proof that they graduated from a university or they had a great track record on Airbnb or that they got a COVID result. Like, and once they get that credential, how they use it is up to them. But of course, if you can't get access to your own data, if the gates got down for your own data, there's no way for you to create a credential. And so global ID is all about self-sovereignty. And so this principle of who owns your data, is it Facebook simply because it sits on a Facebook server? They might have a right to access and use that data as well, and that might be in the terms of use, and that might be legitimate. But the question is, do you lose your own use and access rights to your data simply because you granted a copy for Facebook to use as well? And effectively, some of the legal precedents out there have seemed to suggest that, yes, you sign that right away, and, and Facebook can get in between you and your data, and you can't create a credential, and you can't use your data the way you want to use it. Of course, if that world persists, then the world of global identity and self-sovereignty is undermined because we are not self-sovereign. We are ants living under the tutelage of big giants. And whether those big giants are governments or in this case, corporations, we're certainly not on the top of the stack. And we think that if it's your data and it's a fact, you ought to be able to present that fact and that's a gates down situation. Thomas, let me let me bounce that over to you. You might say it in a different yeah, way. You know, Greg talked about there being some precedents out there in which a company like Facebook can effectively say to you, you cannot share your data with that third party. You cannot give that third party access to your data. Those decisions were unquestionably wrongly decided for a couple of reasons. Number one, we talked about earlier today what the Ninth Circuit said about information monopolies. And what it said is basically in the LinkedIn context, if we're, if we're going to let uh, LinkedIn have complete power and ownership over what people put up on LinkedIn, then effectively we're allowing this big company to create an information monopoly, and that's not going to be in the public interest. Well, I would ask, how does that reasoning not apply to Facebook as well? Just because there are passwords up there does not mean that Facebook effectively isn't in a position to create an information monopoly. But the other reason, uh, I, I, which I think is uh, a little easier to understand, the other reason the decisions are wrong is that the law should not prevent people from doing quickly and efficiently that which allows them to do slowly and inefficiently. There's no question if you have, uh, if you put something up on LinkedIn, your information where you went to school, and I one day decide I want to know where Alec went to school. I'm going to pull that up on my computer. 
I can look at it and I can write it down. No doubt about it. And so if I can do that that way, if I want to know it for a thousand people, I can spend a month sitting there and doing that. I can do it slowly, legally. Why can't I push a button and do a bot? Now, that same reasoning applies in the Facebook context as well. Because there's no question, like Alec, if you decided, hey Tom, you seem like a nice person. I trust you. I'm going to give you my Facebook password. Will you get on my site and just kind of have a look and you can maybe snazz it up a little bit or if you see things on there you think maybe I've exposed myself to defamation or something, maybe edit it a little bit. Here's my password, get on there and do that. You give me it, I get on there and do it. There's no question that's perfectly legal. So if it's perfectly legal in that context for you, as the Facebook poster and the owner of that account, to give me your password and tell me I can get on there and do those things, how in the world can you say it ought to be illegal if I figure out a way to do that really quickly and efficiently electronically and I get a thousand people to say, hey Thomas, here are my passwords, go take a look. I take a quick look. You, you can't have a meaningful intellectual distinction between those two. And because we all understand that you have every right in the world, morally and otherwise, to give me your Facebook password if you want to, you ought to have the right, morally and legally, to allow anybody with your consent to get onto your Facebook profile and see what's on there with your consent. And look, this is the whole model behind Played. You know, it's delegated authority. You, they may not know your password, but they have a token that represents your password. They, you know, you can make it so you don't actually have to give the other person your password. They can get a token, which you can expire, but it, it's effectively your password. And Played is just doing that on a large basis. Now, the question is, and, you know, and Wells Fargo and Bank of America, they could take the view that, like, you know, we don't like that. And so we don't like how you use the data because you create fintech competitors to the banks. But that's not the same as being able to say, we think your access is a hacking violation. You know, and the banks haven't gone there yet. They've been tempted. They've blocked Plaid sometimes. They've been really snarky about having APIs. They've forced Plaid to like scrape, but they haven't had you know, the audacity that Facebook and Microsoft did to actually sue under the CFAA, because I think you know it, the, the the glare of the light on them and it would look just so blatantly anti-competitive. Because Plaid's making it easy for people to delegate authority to their account, so they can do all sorts of other things with their financial records, like get a loan and stuff like that, and 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 get access to all sorts of the services that fintech is bringing us. So this concept of delegated authority in a privacy-preserving, secure way is kind of how the future of financial plumbing and all sorts of other plumbing is going to work, unless Facebook and Microsoft get to play the information monopoly game and saying, it only works with our approval. If we don't like who you're working with, we're going to turn you into dirty, rotten scrapers and felons, and we're going to sue you for trillions of dollars, right, and just bankrupt you. That that's really, you know, going all the way back to 2012 and Craigslist, you know, what's at stake here? And, you know, we're obviously on the side of competition and innovation. We, we respect privacy. We respect security. We, we don't want these delegations of authority to be done in a sloppy way. 
But you know, if, if, if that was happening, then Plaid would have been out of business a long time ago. And look, you know, at the end of the day, when Visa comes in and wants to buy Plaid, you know, that's a recognition of a competitive that threat in and of itself. If you can't beat them, you join them. And, and yet that was such an anti-competitive action that, you know, the government had to step in and say, okay, come on, we get it that you now have like, <laughs> you've realized that, you know, the fox is not, you know, in the hen house, the fox owns the hen house, and you're going to try to buy the fox. And, and so, you know, that's, that's how this game is playing out. And so, but we've, answered the question on the public data side, the private data side, there are still bad precedents out there. So we're only halfway through the battle. The other half of the battle is still to be fought. And, and we intend to be part of that. And so this is, this is the middle for us. It's not the beginning. It's not the end. And, and we're really excited about carrying this all the way through because this next piece, private data with user consent, with appropriate forms of delegated authority, that's what three is what Global ID is all about in giving people, giving every person self-sovereign control over their data. You have to have that, but you cannot have that if Airbnb, Uber, Facebook own your data and you lose control of your data by interacting with those platforms. And you, you, as you can imagine, this would never be tolerated in any other context. I mean, if you put something up on Facebook, a photo, something like that, and a few days later you think, oh... I don't really like that picture. I don't want that up. Imagine if you went back in there and someone at Facebook said, no, we own it. And that's how we want it. Uh, nobody would ever tolerate that. Nobody would think that's acceptable. And so why? Well, that's what, yeah, that's kind of what Craig, Craigslist in, in, in the early days, they tried claiming copyright over all the postings that were on, on Craigslist. Of course, they didn't tell anybody that they were taking, when you click the button, the, you know, the, the fine print that wasn't anywhere, it wasn't even in the terms of use because they were too chicken shit to put it in the terms of use. They just made this, you know, this thing in the click through that you were granting them a copyright. And then finally, someone on the public Internet who read that said, hey, do you know you're granting the copyright in your own resume to like Craigslist and you can't then publish your own, you know, your own resume somewhere else without asking Craigslist permission. And, you know, they got laughed at so badly that they had to fire their law firm over that suggested tactic of, you know, a conveyance, a hidden conveyance of copyright. Those types of games, you know, that was 10 years ago. It's 2022 now. The, 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 these, these sort of abusive forms of terms of use or, or other tricks to, to basically disenfranchise the user base is, you know, the 43 district attorneys that are suing Facebook, they're kind of on to it now. It's not 2012 anymore. So, so Thomas, all of this sounds really reasonable from a common sense perspective. Both of you have mentioned some bad precedents that need to be sorted out. What, what does the legal path look like from here to when we actually have better clarity on, on these questions? Well, we think with respect to public data, like the kind of things that are up on LinkedIn. We're at the point now where there's substantial clarity on what the law is going to be. The only way something changes really is if the United States Supreme Court gets involved and makes a change. And we think that's quite unlikely. With I just want to say, to Tom's point on that, that the, 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 the favorable ruling on Van Buren included both conservatives and liberals in the court. So this is, this is independent of conservative liberal, Republican Democrat, 
This is just like, dude, who owns the data, whether you're a conservative or a liberal? Yeah. Now, when it comes to private data, there's a bad precedent out there within the Ninth Circuit. Now, the Ninth Circuit speaks for the Ninth Circuit, which are the Western states. However, the other circuits are free to disagree. Once they do that, you have what's called a circuit split. And that's one basis whereby which you can ask the Supreme Court to step in and make a decision and say who's right. Um, obviously, what you would hope is that someday the Ninth Circuit would reconsider its own precedents and make the right decision. But if they won't, the avenue to get that fixed is through the United States Supreme Court. And that may be what has to happen here. Or else Facebook could just like become enlightened and just stop behaving the way they're behaving, and, which is possible. It could happen. But, you know, so far they've talked the talk. They haven't walked the walk. And Microsoft did the same thing. Microsoft was trying to be like, you know, we're not, we're not like Facebook and Google and Apple. Like, we're the good guys now. But, you know, in this particular regard, their behavior was continuing to be regressive. And so... Um, you know, when we say we're in the legal tech or reg tech business, we'd rather be in the fintech business. But, you know, sometimes if you really care about something, it's not enough to innovate with technology. You've got to go after changing the laws and the rules, the regulations, or sometimes you've got to go to court. It's just it, it's part of the process of you know, you, you got to fight on all fronts to make change. It isn't just about technical change. That might be what Silicon Valley is most comfortable with, but the really big changes in our society usually have to do with not just a change in technology, it's a change in authority. And like when a revolution comes along like, like, like Bitcoin, yeah, it's technically different, but it also changes authority, like whether you need to ask permission to a third party to do a financial transaction. And we are talking about changing authority here, and it's hard to do that just as a matter of technology. If it was just a matter of technology, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It is a matter of regulation and of law. And, and so, you know, while I think Facebook might just become enlightened, I'm not taking long odds on Facebook becoming enlightened. I, I don't think they're going to give up their monopoly without a fight. Um, we haven't seen them behave like that to date in any way, shape, or form could happen but <laughs> to your point greg none of these legal battles have really been about money it's more been about the principle um of the matter and the principles that define our digital universe is that what we should expect going forward that hard yaka will continue fighting that good fight well well yeah and look i'm not saying there's not money involved but it, it's like when the rules change like when when browsers start making it hard for google or facebook to collect privacy information on folks and and like there's a tremendous amount of money it's not changing hands between say apple and facebook but the balance of what the business model is for these companies changes dramatically and and so we are going to fight for that we are going to fight for a world in which users control their own data they have their own credentials and that's a different world because in in that world users aren't customers that belong to a big tech company. There was a huge shock when, you know, the phone companies used to own your phone number. If you wanted to change from one phone company to another, go get another phone number. But once you owned your phone number, then phone numbers service you. 
And you can switch freely between phone companies. We're, we're going to talk about that for all data and, and all relationships. Like, you know, I have money. Would this bank like to service my money? Or maybe this other bank would like to service my money. But I might not have to go and get another account. I just get somebody else to service the account that I have. And, and, and that's the world we're looking to turn to. But there's still a, We're not anti-government. We're not anti-corporation. But we're just saying the corporations and the government serve the people. It doesn't mean they're not going to have a lot of power, not going to have a lot of money, but we're just trying to get the balance right, that when it comes to your identity, your credentials, your data, your money, it's yours. They service it, and there's lots for them to do, but for them to actually own you and own your data, mm, not so much. And so we are going to continue to fight that fight. That is at the core of what Hard Yakka invests in, and every ecosystem company we have has a role to play in that script because that's more like the Star Trek world that I want to live in. And it's just a direction that we're going in. We're not trying to control it. We just want to be facing in that direction and be along for the ride. And yeah, every so often we'll, you know, pick the right set of facts, the right situation until I kind of make that point. And, and, and this LinkedIn Q case was really just a, a local high point along the way of that journey. So we've scored a win. The fight continues. Do either of you have any uh, final final thoughts? Thomas? Well, I, would, I wouldn't characterize it just as a win. This was a substantial <laughs> victory. Some commentators are, are calling it, and I would agree, the most significant decision in the history of web scraping or the CFAA. And it was. Remember, this is the Ninth Circuit. This is the court that controls the law in California. Where are the LinkedIn's and the Facebook's of the world? They tend to be here. So you have the court that sits in California making that decision. And in the context of making that decision, making other statements that strongly support our view of the world. So this was a substantial and significant victory that I personally am proud to have been a part of. And I, I couldn't be more appreciative of Thomas and the other firms that were, you know, have kind of stood with us and goes all the way back to the, you know, to the days of us being, we were called a lot of names back in those days. And, and you know, it was $13 trillion. And, you know, they didn't just sue the company. They sued everything. They sued Hard Yakka. They sued me personally. I mean, part of the reason that Aaron Schwartz committed suicide was just the pressure. And, you know, on top of all the other challenges with being in, entrepreneur, an innovator, a competitor, to have this kind of legal overhang. Um, that just shouldn't be part of the, the playing field. That, that is not a level playing. It's hard enough without having these kind of sort of dirty trickster type things out there. And so this, this particular avenue, no longer open. Still more work to be done, but it feels like a much more level playing field to me now than it was and how the world looked back in 2012. I, it's called progress. <laughs> well, thank you both. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Greg, um, for just bringing a bit of clarity to what appears to be a hugely important milestone in the history of the internet. We will uh, see you all in the next one. Thanks, Todd. Bye, guys. Thank you.